You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast, the semi-regular politics podcast from the News and Observer and NC Insider team. Uh, Welcome back. We've started up session. We're seeing a lot of uh, movement going around. I should probably introduce myself. I'm Lauren Horsch and I'm here today with Will Doran, Andy Spay, and Colin Campbell. And we're going to run down what exactly has been going on in North Carolina politics. And I promise you, it's less crazy than Virginia politics. Uh, Not very hard to... Meet that standard. Oh, God. No one's written. Well, no one's resigned in Virginia yet. And luckily, we don't have to worry about resigning politicians here in North Carolina yet. Hopefully not this year or anytime soon. Um, But we did have something big happen. The legislative session really started off, but not at a fast pace. We're kind of just sitting around and waiting. Um, Colin, what's what's it been like down there? Uh, Really dull. Um, (laughs) There's not been a whole lot uh, to cover because uh, we're in that early phase of session. It doesn't seem like either chamber is really in a hurry to pass any bills. Uh, They're mostly just uh, filing their proposals, and not even that many bills have been filed yet. Uh, The only action this past week, um, if you can call it that, uh, was the first um, bills going before committee on the House side, and that was the... um, House Education Committee met to discuss this perennial topic at the legislature of school calendar flexibility, which if you're not familiar with that from the last three or four times the issue surfaced, um, is the state has a law that prevents schools from starting before the last latter part of August. Uh, something the tourism industry wanted because they would like people to go on vacation in August and they would like uh, teenagers to be able to keep their summer jobs through August. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of school districts are nearly not uh, fans of this because they're concerned about um, having the flexibility to set a schedule where the semester exams take place before Christmas instead of after Christmas. They're trying to match up with community college uh, academic schedules because there's a lot of dual enrollment programs out there. Uh, So we get these requests from local school boards every year to carve out exemptions for this county or that county. So several of those went before a House Education Committee, uh, which is further than some of them have gotten in the past. Um, And so far, no votes. They just uh, discussed it briefly, and we'll discuss it again in the next few weeks. Uh, But that was really the only... um, action i think with the exception of the house rules fight that you covered we did have the house rules the house permanent rules i should say came out and one of the big controversies maybe was the fact that we're bringing back something committee float something called committee floaters meaning there are four members of the house leadership team uh specifically the house majority leader who is john bell a republican from wayne county uh the speaker pro tempore who is um, Sarah Stevens from Surrey County, also Republican. Uh, The Deputy Majority Leader, Brendan Jones, who is um, also a Republican from Columbus County, and I forget the fourth. It's either Speaker Moore or David Lewis, who's the House Rules Chairman. Um, They can basically show up at any committee if they're needed. Um, Republicans explained it as they needed this for quorum to make sure that when meetings are noticed for, say, 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, they can actually proceed at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. So residents who have maybe driven up from Asheville to see this committee meeting happen have that opportunity to see the committee and get to speak. Uh, But Democrats really think it's a way for them to kill bills faster and can say, like, oh, this bill's coming up. We don't want it. Uh, Okay, let's shuttle in the floaters and kill the bill immediately before it gets to the floor. We even saw Darren Jackson, who's the House Democratic leader, uh, 
use his floor debate to bring in more amendments to the House rules. He could have ran those in committee, but he knew he might have a better chance bringing those amendments to the floor instead of committee because there's more members he can try and convince. Um, but ultimately, his amendments failed. This all seems to be sort of a product of Democrats having more seats this session um, because there's a lot of concerns about the committee appointments, mm-hmm. uh, the Senate side as well, of what percentage of the committee membership in any given committee is Democrats versus Republicans and how much does that mirror the actual composition of who got elected? Yeah, and I think we're seeing that on in both chambers, the House and the Senate. I think they're really paying attention to who's on what committee and what that means for them. I mean, they're even talking about the numbers on the floor of, you know, how many Republicans are on rules, how many Democrats, and what does that mean? Because you can definitely see a situation play out where, say, the Democrats have a bill um, they want to get passed, and they've got a few Republicans on board but not many, um, and then it's a question of whether they can get it through the committee process because if the committee process is stacked enough with the Republicans, you're going to have to get a lot more Republicans on your side to get that bill out of committee and onto the floor, and otherwise it just dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the bigger bills that was already uh, filed was from the Democrats, and it's about Medicaid expansion. And I know, Will, you've been looking a lot at health care issues, including Medicaid expansion. Uh, what do you think we're going to expect out of you know any of those possible Medicaid expansion or health care topics? What do you think we're going to see? Sure. Um, well, before the session even started, uh, there was a, a little press gaggle where someone asked Tim Moore uh, in January about Medicaid expansion. He said it was, you know, something they're looking into and considering details, which, um, you know, might have surprised some people mm-hmm. since the state has previously been pretty anti-Medicaid expansion. Uh, if you if readers remember, uh, Roy Cooper tried to push through Medicaid expansion after he became governor back in 2017. Um but lost in court because he did not have the legal authority to do that. Only the General Assembly can order Medicaid expansion here. Um, there was a push last year for this bill called Carolina Cares uh, that some Republicans were behind. Um, they had tried, some of them, to say that it wasn't Medicaid expansion, but it essentially was. It also came with a work requirement. Um, basically, you have to have a job or be you know, a it, student or volunteer. And, and what's the significance of the work requirement? Because I know there's some people who don't think that we should include that in any Medicaid expansion. Right. It's, it's a political issue. A lot of Republicans want the work requirement. They say we shouldn't just be giving handouts to people who are just sitting on the couch playing video games. Um, Democrats oftentimes don't like the work requirement um, because they say that, you know, it, maybe it discriminates against people with disabilities or people who are, you know, caring for children or sick relatives, things like that. Those are essentially the arguments on both sides. Um, However, Democrats have been calling for Medicaid expansion for so long that you have to imagine, you know, a lot of them will be feeling some pressure from their constituents to vote for something to expand Medicaid, even if it does include a work requirement. Mm-hmm. Has um, there been any polling about the work requirement? I, I haven't seen any personally. So I don't you personally might... know. I'm sure okay. there has been. I haven't looked that up. Um, another player in this, aside from Democrats and Republicans, is the State Hospital Association. Uh, they are definitely in favor of more people having insurance because they are legally required to treat anyone, you know, hospitals required to treat anyone who comes to the emergency room seeking help even if they don't have insurance. And so oftentimes they just lose that money. Sometimes they write it off on their taxes as charities. Sometimes they just eat the loss. So hospitals like the idea of more people being covered, whether that's through a government program like Medicaid or through private insurance. Um, the big question is who's going to pay for it. Um, the, state, the federal government's going to pay for a lot of 
any Medicaid expansion that does happen if it does happen, but not all of it. Um, what's, what's the current federal payback? Is it ninety uh, percent? So the state's got to pay for ten percent, which is better than current Medicaid. I think current is like sixty six percent to thirty three percent, something like that. Um, people can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, <laughs> but His anyways, Twitter handle uh, is no, just kidding. <laughs> anyways, uh, I believe back in 2017, maybe it was 2018, Governor Cooper suggested that we could kind of fund the Medicaid expansion, the state's portion, by having essentially the hospitals pick up the bill. His argument that it would was that it would still be a net win for them. Uh, that even if they're paying this 10, percent they would still be losing less money by having a lot more people insured and being paid by Medicaid. Um, I don't think that that's something that the hospital association will go along with. Uh, maybe, you know, they'll be willing to pay for part of it. I don't know if they're going to want to pay for the entire 10%. So that'll be, you know, probably a, a behind the scenes fight in the legislature. If we even get that far, we'll see. And, and I know one thing that I've been hearing a lot about since I'm around a lot of state employees is the state health plan. There, there's some changes coming there. I don't quite know, but I think you probably know. So what, what's, what's <laughs> yes. going on there? Right. So I'm, I'm actually working on a story about this right now. So a little sneak peek for Domecast listeners. Um, uh, Treasurer Dale Falwell wants to make some changes to the state health plan, which has around 700 to 750,000 members on it. So it's a pretty sizable chunk of the state population gets their health insurance through the state. And... Right now, he's saying that basically hospitals are overcharging people on the plan in order to make up for uninsured people, like I was just talking about with Medicaid expansion. Um, It's all kind of related. Um, And so he wants to change the plan to basically have the state pay hospitals less money through the state health plan, um, through, you know, tying it to Medicaid reimbursement rates, blah, blah, blah. It gets very technical. Um, The end result is... According to Falwell, the state would save around $300 million a year, which is, you know, a nice little chunk of money. And he said of that, around 60 to $70 million uh, would be directly from state employees' pockets. So, you know, if you combine those numbers, you're looking at hospitals losing around $400 million a year. So... I think the hospitals aren't happy with that, are they? They are not happy about that. So what are, have, have you talked to hospital officials? So what, what are they saying? Or I know there's a hospital association, so have you talked to them? Yes, um, I actually talked to them this morning. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they, they say basically they wish that Falwell had worked closer with them when he was coming up with his idea that they're in favor of, you know, reducing costs for state employees. They just think that there are better ways to do it. Um, you know, they pointed to a handful of examples that have worked in other states that they think could work, you know, to basically, you know, help out state employees, help state taxpayers, but not, you know, maybe not as drastically as, you know, a $400 million loss for the hospitals. Because as they say, you know, right now, basically what you have with that plan is you're helping out 730, 750,000 people, but their argument is you're harming the other 9 million people who live in North Carolina by, you know, taking money out of the hospital system, you know, maybe that's going to, you know, hurt hospitals' budgets in other ways. So, well, I think we're going to have a lot to look forward to on the healthcare front this yes. session, and yes. I think that's going to be a big talking point for a lot of state employees. So, I think we're going to be keeping a close watch on that. And Will does cover state employees, so if you have any tips, hints, or things he should check out. Go find his info. Please do. Send it my way. <laughs> Another big thing North Carolinians have really been just 
watching constantly has been the fraud allegations in the North Carolina 9th District. And we actually have an evidentiary hearing coming up on February 18th where we're going to see a lot about uh, just I don't even know what we're going to see. Sorry, there's two microphones in front of Andy, and it's very funny looking. Um, I apologize. I know this is a podcast and you can't see, but if you hear giggling, it's because Andy has two microphones. Um, But, yeah, so this comes after the North Carolina State Board of Elections was actually dissolved for a while, and and both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party had to appoint new people, but... Uh, they messed up a little bit and had to renominate new people because when the law was rewritten, certain people couldn't uh, serve on the board, specifically those who had been involved in electioneering within a certain amount of time. So both the Democrats and the Republicans had to reappoint two ma- or to renominate. They did not appoint Cooper appoints, so they had to renominate uh, two people for each party. Um, but. What else is going on in Board of Elections land? I know Andy here has been covering a little bit about some subpoenas we had last year that asked for, what, some 7 million voter records from the state? And it, it was a lot of voter records. Yeah. It and, was in the millions. Yeah, I think it was 7 million. That's significant. I'll take your word for it. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, last August, um, the North Carolina Elections Board was subpoenaed for a ton of records. Um, uh, ballots, uh, applic- uh, like voting applications, you know, to sign up registration forms, things like that, between 2010 and 2018. Now that's, I mean, eight years of records from the State Board of Elections as well as 44 different county boards of elections. So y- you can imagine it was in the millions. Um, and that subpoena was requested by ICE, the immigration agency. And... Uh, it's been a while, obviously, since they asked for it. And recently, a couple of lawmakers, Destin Hall and Holly Grange, both Republicans. Um, and they're the chairman of the Elections and Ethics Enforcement Board, right? In the, in the House, right? I believe Holly Grange is a woman. But, well, yes, but they, uh, they yes, still they, use chairman. Right. They, <laughs> are, they are the chairs, so to speak, of that uh, committee. And they wrote an article, um, sort of, or a letter, I should say, um, that critiqued and slammed the elections board for not quote unquote not complying with that subpoena um, and that was issued through the House speaker's office Tim Moore's office put it out there uh, and so it gives people the impression that you know the nonpartisan North Carolina Board of Elections, which has had a lot going on lately uh, is you know, sort of um, you know, telling, you know, telling the U.S. Attorney General, Attorney's Office no, that they're not going to comply. Um, but that's not the case. Uh, when, when the subpoena was issued, they told uh, Robert Higdon, is his name, the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina, that uh, the request was overly broad and that they, it would take so much time and effort uh, to uh, complete it. Uh, not to mention the fact that some of the things they asked for, um, like the voting registration applications, include private information. Because uh, that as, has, like, social security numbers on it, right? Right. The last four digits of a social security number, date of birth, um, 
driver's license number as well as signatures. Um, most voter data is vo- voter data is public record because I can go and say look up your voter registration and it'll tell me like your address and when you voted, but it doesn't have that personal information. Right, right. So backing it up a bit, there's a subpoena. It came out in August. It was uh, sought by ICE. The elections board said, "Hey, you know, we would like to quash this." Meaning, you know, not you know, not fulfill it to its fullest, but limit it somehow. Um, and they have been in negotiation since then. Um, so the letter issued by Grange and Hall was sort of misleading. Uh, they they even said that the subpoena did not seek private voter information, but it does. Um, they said that uh, the subpoenas seek to dis- are are looking for potential election fraud. But that's sort of in doubt because there's been no public statement from the U.S. Attorney's Office saying that that's what they're seeking. And uh, on the subpoena itself, uh, the Elections Board is asked to send its materials to an ICE agent based in Cary. One would think that, you know, if you're working for the Im- an immigration agency, you're not, ac- you know, exactly concerned with whether or not a, uh, an election was uh, – fraudulent you're more concerned with who who is here uh, properly and and who's improperly taking part in these things so there's some crossover but it, it it's a little misleading to suggest that ice is out there you know trying to ensure you know the sanctity of these elections all that said um i believe it was yesterday wednesday when uh finally the two sides uh the u.s attorney's office and the Board of Elections and Josh Stein, the Attorney General, who had been negotiating on the side of uh, the State Board, announced that they had reached a deal and they're going to subpoena only – their the Elections Board is going to hand over only 789 uh, materials. And that is significantly less than the oh. millions that oh. they were originally supposed to hand exactly. over. And so – and we need to give credit where it's due. Robert Higdon – um, back in September, wrote a letter to Josh Lawson, the general counsel for the elections board, um, saying that he uh, was okay discussing the scope of the subpoena and possibly um, whittling it down some. So this wasn't the back and forth rock'em sock'em fight that uh, Hall and Grange made it out to be in their letter. Um, but uh, there's been uh, this came up in the news this week because the negotiation um, resolution was announced yesterday. Meanwhile, ICE has been picking up people seemingly left and right in North Carolina this week. Um, it's been in the news a lot. And with that, I think we're done with our news roundup, and we will move on to our favorite portion, headliner of the week. We'll be right back. Headliner of the week. 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 Who's hot? Welcome back to Domecast. We're here for our last segment of the day. Headliner of the week. And eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Will's turn to go first. I'm going to throw climate change into the hat. Uh, Today's Thursday. We saw some of the Democrats in Congress roll out their uh, Green New Deal proposal that they have for dealing with climate change. And yesterday, Wednesday, uh, Governor Roy Cooper was up in Congress testifying about climate change, you know, as governor of a state with a large coastline uh, that has been hit by some 
major, major natural disasters in the last few years from hurricanes to wildfire, wildfires. Obviously, you know, climate change is of major concern to the people of North Carolina. So he was up there, uh, you know, trying to drive home to Congress, you know, that he believes it's a major, major issue. Um, I saw that that had uh, some people rolling their eyes a little bit since he had been such a, uh, you know, he's been so embroiled with this Atlantic Coast Pipeline project. And, you know, people are saying, well, why, why did you push for that? you know, natural gas pipeline going through North Carolina is so much if you are so worried about climate change, mm-hmm. but yeah, on the right. Um, but you know, I, I think Cooper's people would tell you that it's, you know, possible to be in favor of both economic development and ending climate change. We'll see. And with that climate change in the headliner of the week hat, um, Andy, who's your headliner? This week? I, I have two. Um, That's not, we can't do two. We I'll be, I'll be quick. <laughs> Uh, the first is uh, my little brother, Samuel, was a page for Julie Von Hafen this week. Um, and we, I had a great time hosting him at my house and talking about how state government works. It's sort of fascinating um, to uh, take questions about how the process works and what, you know, just what people do on so, any given day and so who's for, who's at the Capitol and who's not and what do they do. So for people who don't know, pages are usually high school students who come into the General Assembly and help out throughout the week. So I got to see uh, Andy's little brother in House committee meetings on the House floor, mm-hmm. and they're just there to help the process along. Anyway, right, and um, <laughs> he told me a funny story about, I won't reveal the legislator's name, but they were in session, and he had accidentally deleted an app and needed help getting his information back and I think it was a sergeant at arms that was trying to help this legislator and eventually they gave up and threw their hands up and my little brother Samuel said can can I help and they're like yeah sure and so eventually uh, he got it back and learned that this particular legislator wanted to take a photo he had a photo on his phone and put it into his notes app which is not where I store my photos, but it's interesting that the legislator wanted to do that. Uh, and I, it just made me think about the, it just made me think about life. <laughs> so, so what app did he, de- did, did Sam know what app was deleted or was it his Oh, he had actually accidentally deleted his notes app. What had happened oh. was, oh, okay. this legislator wanted to put a photo in the notes app. And he told Samuel that when he took his, when Samuel offered to help. And then Samuel couldn't find the notes app which comes on the phone. Like, it comes on I- typical iPhones, just like as a regular app, just like anything else, just like messaging or whatever. And so Samuel, once he discovered, he had to re-download the Notes app and then figure out how to put a photo into Notes, uh, which I think is, like I said, Notes is mostly for, you know, jotting down little, you know, messages to yourselves. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that's a funny experience that I'll always remember. Um, but my other one, I will say, uh, good job, Samuel, for your week. Yeah, pages are really, uh, you know, more valuable than you think because you have these, you know, technology experts just literally sitting there and, right. you know, they can help you out that's and right. save the day. That's right. Um, the other one I want to get in, though, um, we didn't mention during the news segment is that uh, Roy Cooper had appointed Luana Mayfield, a controversial Charlotte City Councilwoman, to I think it was the HR Commission, Human Relations Commission. Yeah, yeah. and um, at the time that was controversial because she has uh, said that she doubts that planes blew up the Twin Towers on 
and then she referred to police as terrorists. And so she received some pushback, um, especially from the Charlotte Observer editorial board. And I think it was yesterday or the day before he rescinded um, that appointment. So um, that was, I don't know if that was mentioned in earlier podcasts, but um, I thought we should catch our, our listeners up on that, that that appointment happened, there was pushback, and uh, now it's been rescinded. Mm -hmm. so, Roy Cooper and my little brother Samuel as headliners of the week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for that, Andy. How about you, Colin? Who's your headliner? Well, I am going uh, in my uh, traditional fashion with uh, inanimate things as uh, headliners, as I've done for years. Uh, and this time I'm going for ice cream because it could soon be the state's official frozen treat uh, if a bill uh, filed this week at the legislature uh, succeeds. Um, and the re reason for that is that uh, State Representative John Torbett, a uh, Republican from Gaston County, has filed a bill to do that. Uh, it's not just because uh, Representative Torbett likes ice cream, although he came by my office while eating an ice cream cone this week, so he man certainly practices what he preaches, uh, but he's responding to a request and a classroom project from some elementary school students in his Gaston County district. Uh, the elementary schoolers originally wanted to uh, have sort of as a civics lesson, trying to get um, their favorite local ice cream parlor, Tony's Ice Cream, named as the official frozen treat of the state of North Carolina. Uh, John Torbett, the politician that he is, recognized that uh, naming one specific ice cream company might prove controversial to the other ice cream companies, so he decided to uh, help the class go for a more broader request. Um, Sounds like a rocky road to go down. Yeah, he might have gone down a rocky road. Um, but anyway, so he filed this bill. I was able to get a scoop on the bill and get this up on uh, on the Twitters. Um, and um, as a result, uh, we'll be hearing soon, I think, from uh, some students who uh, want to make the case that uh, ice cream should uh, get that designation alongside the uh, state's beverage, uh, official beverage, which is milk. So uh, one thing leads to another. Uh, and for that, ice cream is my pick this week. Did you tell them, are they going to have to scream for it? Yeah. Yeah, ice cream, yeah, you scream. We all scream for uh, legislation to be passed. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it remains the ice cream bill, because I remember a few years back there was another school group bill. Yeah, the official state it. cat that was going to be the bobcat, but... This really is, you know, a proper, like, schoolhouse rock lesson about the North Carolina legislature is you come up with a bill, you get on, the, you know, I guess it's not really a hill in Raleigh, but whatever you want to call it, um, and the House votes unanimously for your bill, and everybody's happy, and then it goes over to the Senate um, and either gets stripped out and becomes something else. I think one time the state cat became a hospital regulation bill, kind of in keeping with what we were talking about earlier on the podcast. Another time it got sent to the Senate Rules Committee to die, as many, many bills uh, get sent to the Rules Committee to die. So uh, uh, students definitely learn how uh, politics truly does work in North Carolina. Gotta love them. Um, so in keeping with breaking a little bit of rules, I'm going to pick a tie for headliner of the week. And I'm going to pick Samuel Spay and Ice Cream because they're both learning about the legislative process in different ways. And I think it's really important for young people to interact with their elected officials and learn more about how a bill becomes a law. So for that, Samuel Spay, congratulations. Yeah, I think he, sh he should win some ice cream. I'm sure Andy could uh, help him Put out that with that. Up. I will. I'll <laughs> take him over uh, to NC State. We'll get uh, some wolf tracks. Well, you can now buy some of it in Harris Teeter stores. Read that on the newsandobserver.com. Uh, anyway, for Will Doran, Andy Spay, Colin Campbell, I'm Lauren Horsch. Thanks for listening to this week's Dumbcast. Have a wonderful day. 
You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.